morning. We just wanted to chill you down a little bit because, you know, cold morning, wind, nothing builds up the soul like a bit of cold, icy wind blowing over your soul, is there? Let's close. Brothers and sisters, I've said many times, and I want to use this metaphor again this morning, that when you leave church, when you put away your Bible, once you finish praying, and you go into the presence of God, or you, you leave God's presence, you're stepping out into a gale force wind of opposition, of resistance to your life. To the principles and the values that you hold dear, you will face a gale force wind of the values, the culture, and the customs of the world when you step out. So when you step out today, if there's wind blowing on the street, you go, no, I know what Michael was talking about. If it's windy on the street today, it was supposed to be windy this morning. Um, so when you, I want to use that as a metaphor this morning because I want to talk again to you about the resistance. If you were here last week, we were talking about the resistance that is going on within us to living the way God wants us to live and to be the people that God wants us to be. Today, I want to talk about a different kind of resistance. You see, when you see people out there and they're standing in that wind, they're being affected by the values and the customs and the, the, the culture of the world that we live in. Now, when I refer to the world, that's what I'm talking about. The values, the customs, and the culture of the world we live in. And you stand in that too because you live in it. Jesus said, you are in the world, but you are not of the world. You're in it, but you're not of it. You're different. You've been called to something completely different. And all of the people, just like Tom referenced, around you are living in the same culture as you, and they're going to be affected in different ways than you. Some of them think it's a fantastic culture. It's an amazing culture. But you as a Christian may find some things in the culture to be objectionable, and things that you disagree with, and some things that are contrary to God's will, God's purpose, and God's plans. You know, about 1,200 years before Christ, Solomon, King Solomon, who was considered to be the wisest man who ever lived, wrote a fantastic book called Ecclesiastes. You can read it in the Old Testament. It's a great, it's this summation of what he felt was the reality in the world. And he comes to a great conclusion of it at the end. But as he was talking about it, he mentions the wind as well. And he talks about people chasing the wind. One of the interesting things about the wind is this. It is always changing direction. It's always going a different way. You go to bed, the wind is coming from the south. You get up in the morning, it's coming from the east. The following day, it could be coming from the north, or the northeast, or the northwest, or the southwest. You don't know because that's what wind does. It changes direction. It's a great metaphor for culture, for the world's culture, because the world's culture is constantly changing. And if we chase that wind, we will end up frustrated. If we continually chase it, we will never find the fixed point that we can get to. Here's what Solomon wrote. He wrote this. He said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. He said, I refused my heart no pleasure. And when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Chasing after the wind. He could never catch up with it. He could never satisfy his soul with all the things that he gave himself and all the things that he did. All that he accumulated never satisfied his soul. And he said this, he said the same about others. They were constantly chasing the wind, trying to catch up with something that simply wasn't catchable. 
But God has a better plan for his people. He has a plan to give them a fixed point that they can run to. He gives them a fixed point where they can aim at. He gives them fixed values and a fixed culture that doesn't change like the sands or like the winds or like the times or like the culture. He gives them something fixed and something solid. And it's to that I want to look this morning. But before I do that, I want to talk about a guy called Tantalus. Now, last week, if you were here, it doesn't matter if you weren't, and if you're tuning in online or on Facebook or on Instagram or on YouTube, you can tune in, you can check out last week's message if you want, it's up to yourself. Um, if you check it out, you'll see I was talking about a guy called Sisyphus. And Sisyphus was a guy who was stuck in the underworld. He was, he was met by a guy called Odysseus. Odysseus was the main character in this poem called The Odyssey. And he meets Odysseus, and Odysseus meets this guy Sisyphus, who has to shove a rock up a hill for all eternity. That's his punishment. Well, the meeting was all over, and I was upstairs and moving around the atrium, and somebody said, you know, I enjoyed your message today, and it was very interesting to hear about that character Syphilis. <laughs> And uh, so his name wasn't Syphilis, it was Sisyphus, okay? Sisyphus. But if he was from Cork, I think you can guess what his nickname was going to be, right? But today I want to talk about a guy called Tantalus, and I'm using this because at the same time as Solomon wrote that, Homer wrote the, the Odyssey. Not Homer Simpson, just for the record, Homer the Greek poet, he wrote the Odyssey. And in it, he meet, when he's in the underworld, he meets a guy called Tantalus, and here was Tantalus' trial. He was condemned for all eternity to stand suspended between fruit above his head and water below, somewhere around his chest in fact, around his chest, just above his head. And he was suspended there for all eternity, and he was famished with the hunger, starving with the hunger, and patched dry with thirst. But every time he reached up for the fruit to satisfy his hunger, it would recede away from him, just out of his reach. And every time he went down to drink water to quench his thirst, the water would recede away from him, so he couldn't drink. And so he'd go back up to get the food again and reach up, and it would recede. And then he'd go down to drink again. And so he continually was stuck in his, in his cycle of desire, trying to satisfy his hunger, trying to satisfy his thirst, but never, ever being satisfied. And that was his prison for the rest of eternity. That was his judgment. He was to stay there, suspended, unsatisfied for the rest of all eternity and you know sometimes that's what the world does it makes us promises it dangles the fruit just above our heads but it's always out of reach it gives us refreshment just below us but it's always just out of reach well that was his experience 1200 years before Christ but a little bit more recently somebody else came up and put it a different way it was Mick Jagger from the Rolling Stones and he said I can't get no satisfaction but he said it in such a cool way, I'd love to be able to say it. I can't say it the way he said it. 1965 Rolling Stones hit, I can get no satisfaction. And he was speaking to a reality. And this is the reality. That this world, its cultures, its customs, and its values will never satisfy your soul. It will never satisfy your soul. Only Jesus will satisfy your soul. Amen. Only God can satisfy your soul. He is the only one who can fill the longing, who can fill the hole in your heart, the hole in your life. Only Jesus can do it. And I'm going to talk to you today about the world. Today I want to talk about resistance and the resistance that we experience in the world. 
the, the experience that you have. So when you have a certain set of beliefs and you have a certain way that you want to live your life, the world offers resistance to that way of living. It wasn't, doesn't want you to live that way. Now, last, last week I used a triptet that is that's really old. It's as old as Christianity itself. Christianity has always been identified, or the early Christian church teachers have always identified three enemies that oppose the Christian. Three main enemies, and here are their enemies. You're familiar with them, I used them last week. The first, the world, then the flesh within yourself, and then the devil. So there's the world and its culture and its customs and its values. There is your flesh, the desires that are at work inside you. And then there is the devil who whispers his lies and never tells the truth. There's an American Christian writer and pastor, his name is John Mark Comer, and he actually suggests that perhaps the way that this whole system works is it works the other way around. The world, the flesh, and the devil is drawn from a scripture which we'll look at in a minute, but he suggests that it's actually flipped around, that actually the way that the whole system works or the way that everything works against you is this. He says, first of all, the devil produces deceptive ideas, a.k.a. lies. He tells us lies. He tells us individually lies. He tells the culture lies. He tells societies lies. And then those lies are put to play with the disordered desires in our own life. So those deceptive ideas play to disordered desires in our lives. And then in the world, they are normalized in a sinful world. So lies and deception appealing to our inner desires and then normalized in a sinful world because literally Everyone is doing it. Everyone is doing it. And he, there's another author, author who described it in this way. He described it as the anti-trinity of evil that is arrayed against us. It's an anti-trinity. So we have the trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil, which is the anti-trinity to God's trinity that is at work against us. It's arrayed against us so that you will not fulfill God's purpose, God's plan, and not live the life that God intended you to have. That's the way it's set up. That's the way he's done it. There's an, there's an English Christian theologian. His name is Theo Hobson. And he, he summed it up in a different way. I'll tell you something about the thing about the wind, the way it changes. I've become a Christian. I became a Christian in 1986, which now feels like the ice age. At this stage, it feels so far ago, right? So I became a Christian in 1986. And when I became a Christian, I was 18 years of age. And within the next probably two, three, four years, as I read the scriptures, fellowship with other Christians, and was in God's community, I formed a certain view of the world on the best way to live and the worst way to live. I formed a view on the world on the way that culture was right and the way that culture was wrong. And basically, basically, my thinking in that way has been pretty well intact since I was in my early 20s. So this would be back in 1991 or 92. At the time, at the time, most of my opinions and most of the things I felt about culture, morality, society were mainstream. Everybody thought them. It was perfectly normal. It's just the way everybody thought at the time. So it wasn't that extreme to become a Christian at the time. But Theo Hobson makes an observation about the change in culture and the change in values that has come over society and is challenging you everywhere you go. Here's how he sums it up. He says this. He says, what was universally condemned is now celebrated. Then he says, what was universally celebrated is now condemned. You can just fill in the blanks yourself, brothers and sisters. And finally he said, those who refuse to celebrate are now condemned. If you don't celebrate the way the culture's going, the way the culture's values have changed, if you don't celebrate, you are the one who is condemned. 
And I woke up in a cold sweat realizing I'm a hate-filled bigot. I wasn't when I was in my mid-twenties, but apparently that's how I'm interpreted by some people. I'm not brothers and sisters, I can assure you. But that's the way culture has changed. And it will change. And do you know what it's going to do? It's going to change again. And it's going to sweep around. And it's going to turn around. And so therefore we need to decide what it is that we believe and what it is that we're going to pursue. And can I suggest to you, God's way is the best way to pursue. Can I get an amen to that? What God says is the best way to pursue. Because his ways are the right ways. He made us. He made us for himself. So I want to look at some scriptures this morning because in reality, when you see that, this means war. This means war because you are now at war with the values and cultures of the world. That's what you're at. You're at war with them. This is what Peter writes to the early Christians. He says this. He says, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners in the world to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. They wage war against your souls. They're not neutral. They're not, hey man, whatever you're having yourself. They're not, well, it's all whatever you feel yourself. No, these desires and these influences are at war with your soul. I love he describes us as temporary residents and foreigners because ultimately this world is not our home. We are not at home in this world. And if you find yourself at home in this world, you will find yourself homeless in the next world. Are you with me? Are you with me? Oh, yeah, I came in for such encouragement this morning. Great to hear Pastor Mike warning me. But you know, the reality is there is a war going on in your life and in your soul and in your reality. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to honor God, if you want to live the way he wants you to live and tells us to live, you will have a war going on being waged against your soul. Let me tell you a brief love story, okay? A love story that is told in 1 John chapter 2. John's gospel is, or John, the letters of John is very interesting because John goes from being a very uh, battle-hardened guy. He was nicknamed Boanerges, which means the son of thunder. He was ready for a fight in any situation. He was calling on fire on people. He was full of judgment and full of fire. And then later in his life, he became known as the apostle of love. Well, here's something he said, interestingly, about love. Here's what he said. He said, do not love the world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Amen. When you love the world, if you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. And if that causes you to shift uncomfortably in your seat, that's okay. It caused me to shift uncomfortably in my seat all week long. I can assure you that the more I've thought about it. But there's something that we need to pay attention to and it's this. What John is saying is that our love for the Father is mutually exclusive. It is for him and for him only. We can't love two things. We can't love two things at the same time. Jesus said you love the one and you'll hate the other. You'll hate the one and you'll love the other. That's how it goes. You can't love two things simultaneously. There has to be one serious love in your life. I can't love my wife and love my mistress. I don't have a mistress, just, well, just in case you... I don't, just, just, just want to clear that one up very, very clearly. You can't love two things at the same time. A guy who says, baby, there was nothing in it. It didn't have any meaning to me. It was just a fling. Nah, you're fired. 
You're fired. Worse than forgetting your wife's anniversary. It's even worse than that, right? If, he says, for when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. What's the love? When he talks about loving the world, loving the world's culture, loving the world's customs, loving the world's values. That's what it is. When you love those things, you do not have the love of the Father in you. And this is why he says it. He says, for the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure. A craving for everything we see. A pride in our achievements and our possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. So, uh, cravings, lust, if you will. Here, let me give it to you in the NIV. More familiar to so many. For everything in the world, same passage, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life come not from the Father, but from the world. The lust of the flesh, what we lust after, what we desire. And can I just say, women can struggle with lust just as much as men. Let us now take a moment of silence to reflect on that. It's true. It's true. You know, a couple of years ago, the number one selling book in Ireland was? Anyone? Fifty Shades of Grey. Do you know who was buying it? Moving swiftly on. The lust of the flesh. Whether it's food or drink or whatever it is that we're addicted to, whatever pleasure it is. This is the lust of the eyes, what we greed after, what, what, we, what we jealously covet, what we're envious for. That's the lust of the eyes, the things we see and we, oh, I wish I had that in my life. And then there's the pride of your life. It is the things that you're so proud of. And it's, it says earlier, your possessions and so on and so forth. The things that I'm proud of, well, I've done this. I'm a self-made man. Hallelujah. I'm a self-made man. There's no self-made men in the kingdom of God. Can I get an amen? There's no self-made men in the kingdom of God. And he says, these things do not come from the Father, but from the world. And he's referencing there, he's actually alluding to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And what happens in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, the devil comes and he begins to whisper in Eve's ear and says, has God really said, and we look at lies another time, but has God really said, and it says this of Eve, that when she saw the fruit of the tree, first of all, she saw that it was pleasing to the eye, Second, that it was good to eat. And third, that by eating it, she would gain knowledge. She would understand. So she took the fruit from the tree and she ate it. Why? Because it looked good, it felt good, and it seemed like the smart thing to do. That is exactly what he's alluding to here. And the curious thing about the world is this. You see, the world, it, it does something really unusual to us. And, and I, I think sometimes we might miss this. That the culture and values of the world, they're actually selling you something. And do you know the thing that they're selling you? They're selling you yourself. They're selling you you. Just a different version of you. A you who drives a nicer car. You who has better abs and pecs and muscles. A you who has fuller lips. God bless you. <laughs> That's the you that they're selling it. It's the same, but it's still you. I remember, and I, I'm going to give an example for something that I fell for, okay? I'm going to fell, uh, because I fell for being sold myself once upon a time, believe it or not. Um, and you're kind of thinking, what did Michael do? Anyways, so when I was a young man, when I was a young man, I carried me pack and I lived the free life of a rover. I decided, for whatever reason, that I wanted to get some aftershave. Probably smelled aftershave from somebody else. But you know, I think I'd like some aftershave. And I was barely shaving at the time, okay? So I'm not 
on to the aftershave for. So I decided I was going to get some aftershave. So I went to a perfumery, also known as a shop that sells aftershave. So I went to this shop and I went into the shop and, and there was a girl serving behind the counter and um, she was a lovely girl, very attractive girl. And uh, I said, hi, she said, hi, how can I help you? I said, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to buy some, some aftershave. I'd like to get some aftershave. She says, do you have anything particular in mind? I said, no, no, just, you know, what, would you recommend anything? And she went, Mm. And she's thinking, what a sucker, here we go. Mm. So she said, let me have a look at it. Oh, try this one, she says. She takes this one and she says, it's called Paco Rabanne. Anybody ever try Paco Rabanne? Yeah, yeah praise the Lord. All the old for this, I tried it once. By the way, brothers and sisters, just for the record, before I tell you the Paco Rabanne story, there's nothing sexy about the smell of B.O. Just saying that for the record. There was no one who ever said, I fell for his beard, his body, and his B.O. Never happened, never happened. Anyway, so she takes out this bottle of a pack of Raban and, and she says, hey, do you want to try some? I said, well, it seems you asked me. Yes, so I put my wrist out and she sprays it on my wrist and she says, take a, you know, take a sniff of that. Think, what do you think? And I went, yeah, it, it, it was nice. It was nice and she said, let me have a go. So I put my wrist out to her and she went, Mm. Can I have four litres of Pacoraban immediately, please? The larger the bottle, the better. But you know what she did? She sold me. She sold me myself. Only a better smelling version of myself. That's all she sold me. That's exactly what she did. She took me and she stuck in the hook and reeled me in and I was like a fish on the end of the line simply because she went mm. and I thought I want to have that effect on all the chicks like I want to have that effect on all the chicks I saw Johnny Depp in an ad recently I'll go back to the message in a second I saw Johnny Depp in an ad recently I know he's a controversial guy and I'm not saying good bad or indifferent about Johnny Depp you knock yourself up whatever you like Johnny Depp so I see Johnny Depp in an ad and he's in an ad for a, a, a perfume called Dwarf Sauvage how do you know that? I feel it's the spirit of the world. Come out. So he's doing an ad, right? He's doing that. So you've seen the ads, right? Dwarf Savage. And there's Johnny Depp, and he's got this kind of sleeveless thing on, and he's all muscles and tattoos and hair and earrings and goldy teeth or whatever he has. He probably doesn't have any goldy teeth. And a kind of a rough hewn beard. And he's playing a guitar. Yay! And you're standing there going, oh, Johnny Depp, why, oh, he's so cool. And then as it pans back, he's in the middle of the desert. There's nothing to plug the amp into, but he's still playing the amp in the middle of the desert. And there's lightning striking behind him and saying, Johnny, be careful, will ya? And next thing, as he continues playing this music, out from behind him come a pack of four wolves. And then it finishes off with, dwarf. Savage for men. And Cinder going, oh, I wish I could play the guitar like him. I wish I looked like Johnny Depp. Maybe my wife wouldn't ignore me so much if I looked like Johnny Depp. <laughs> but I was being sold, and the poor fellow who went off and bought Duar Savage, and if you bought some, God bless you. But you were just being sold a nicer smelling version of yourself. Because when you spray on Savage, you don't look like Johnny Depp. You don't sound like Johnny Depp. You don't even feel like Johnny Depp. You just feel like Fat Harry looking in the fridge, looking in the wind, looking in the mirror going, now I'm sexy. No, you're not. 
That's how the world works. It appeals to your own desires, your own view of yourself, and tries to improve it. Let me offer you an improvement to the way that you look and that you feel. Let's see what uh, he finishes off by saying. He says this, And in this world, he said, is fading away along with everything that people crave. It's all fading away. It's going away. Johnny Depp is fading away. God, bro, Johnny. Dwarf Savage is fading away. A pack of a band is well and truly faded away. It's only old fellas like me who wear it now. It's fading away. But anyone who does what pleases God will live, hold on, forever. Hallelujah. Whoever does what pleases God will live forever. You see, we are, if you will, sponges. We are, if you will, receptacles for the things that we hear and the things that we see and the things that we feel. Let me tell you a fundamental reality. This is a fundamental biological reality. It's true about every single cell in your body, okay? This is a fundamental biological reality. It isn't from the Bible, but it's a reality, and you'll know it when you see it. You are what you eat. Nothing else. You're not more than what you eat. You don't invent calories. You don't get rid of calories for no reason. You are exactly what you eat. The products you put into your body are what's building your muscles and nerves and fibers and skin cells and hair cells and fingernail cells, whatever you're having yourself. But you are what you eat. And it is so true of us as well in our souls. Our souls are what they eat. Our values are what we eat. Our spirits are what we eat. So what are we eating? What are we consuming? Who do we spend the most time with? Who do you love the most? Who do you love the most? Because the essence of any relationship is time. The, the, the American theologian, uh, yeah, the Dallas Willard, he said, the first act of love, act of love is always the giving of attention. We attend to the things that we love. So if you say to your kids, you know, hey, Bobby, take it, boy, did I go for an American accent, but an American, <laughs> Shawnee, you'll do Sean, hey, Sean, if there's a Sean, I'm sorry, look, let me pick a, Pablo, I hope there's no, any Pablo here? No Pablo. <laughs> no Pablo, is there a Pablo here? There is, where's Pablo? Pablo, where are you? Pablo, Pablo? No, 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 say no, Pablo. Pablo, put your hand up if you're here. Pablo Escobar, please come to the center. So there's no Pablo here inside the room at the moment, unless he's really shy and sitting on his hand. That's okay, Pablo. And then we think that you say to Pablo, Pablo, I love you, but you never spend any time with Pablo. News for you, you don't love Pablo. You might have feelings towards Pablo. You might go, ah, he's my son, and have sentimental, oh, I wish I could be with you. No, spend time, that's love, that's it. Love is spelled T-I-M-E. That's it. It's not very complicated. And we are what we eat. So whatever we spend the most time with is what we love. That's the reality. If we spend the most of the time on our phone, you may be in love with the iPhone 12. God bless you. You may be in love with the Samsung Galaxy S3. God bless you. Whatever you spend the most time with, that's what you love. And here's another reality. We become what we behold. 
We become like the thing that we admire the most. They say it, don't they say it? They, they, what's the word for it? What they say is the highest form of flattery. What's the word? That's imitation. the word? Imitation. Thank you. Imitation is the highest form of flattery. We imitate the things that we love the most. If a kid can't kick a ball straight and he's two left legs, even if he imitates Lionel Messi, he'll become a better football player. That's the reality. You become better at what you admire the most. And that's how the system of the world works. And that's how we work as human beings. So therefore, the challenge to us is, what are we eating? What are we consuming? What media are we consuming? What are we feeding our souls? What are we feeding our minds? What are we feeding our hearts? Even what are we feeding our bodies? And what are we, what do we look up to? What do we admire the most? I'm cross-referencing Psalm 115, verse 48, where it says that those who worship idols become just like those idols. They have hands, but they can't feel. Eyes, but they can't see. Ears, but they can't hear. Mouths, they can't speak. And feet, but they don't go nowhere. Because they become what they worship the most. Hallelujah. So how do we stand up? Paul writes to the Christians in Rome. And no boy, lads, if we think we have it tough, the Christians in Rome had it tough. Right next door, right next door to Nero. Hello, Nero. I see him on this balcony in the morning. They were the serious Christians. Here's what he wrote to them. He said, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. It's the way you think. That's, what, that's, that's what's going to change you. Every change in our lives comes, a, comes about as a result of the way that we think. He says, change, let God change you into a new person by changing the way you think. And I like that. How do we do? How do we change the thing we think? It's what we put into our minds. That's what comes out of our minds. It's what we're putting into our minds is what comes out. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. It is good. God's plans for his people are good. Can I get an amen? amen. God's purpose for his people is good. Can I get an amen? amen. God's will is good, it's pleasing, it's perfect, it's exactly what God wants to do in your life, for your life, and through your life. Hallelujah. So how do we do it? Let's try some very brief ones. I looked at some spiritual practices last week, um, and I've been, I was reading about spiritual practices. Somebody loaned me a book, in actual fact, there's somebody sitting down at the back of the room there at the moment, by a guy called John Mark Comer called uh, Live No Lies. Let me tell you something, don't ever loan me a book, Okay? Because if I like the book, you ain't never seen that book again. Straight to the library. Straight to the library. And in fairness, what happened is I was given this book and I started underlining bits of it because that's what I do when I'm reading books. Underline bits. And I had to confess. I sent a message. It's Sinead. Say hi, Sinead. Um, it was Sinead and she gave me the loan. She said, I, I think you might like this. I devoured it. It was absolutely brilliant. And I started underlining it. And then I messaged her. I said, look, I'm after underlining your book. She said, yeah, keep it. I knew you'd do that anyway. Um, <laughs> How do we actively resist the world's influences? Well, they're what's called the spiritual disciplines. Oh, we love discipline, don't we? Amen. They're called disciplines because they're not always easy to do. It's not going the way that your flesh desires. It's not going the way that your culture desires. It's not going the way the world wants you to go. It's a discipline. You make a choice. You make a decision about how you invest your time and your energy and your focus. Here's a couple that I want to bring from the list last week and one extra new one. Here's, here's the first one. Solitude and silence. Unplug from the distractions of the world and keep company with Jesus. And do you know what that actually means, unplug? It means sometimes put away the phone. Turn off the TV. Switch off the laptop. Turn 
off the radio. Radio, like who is the radio anymore? But then you turn it off your radio, right? That's what it means. It means to literally unplug. Why? Because then you'll find something interesting happening in your mind. You'll begin to become a little bit more peaceful. If you're listening to the news all the time, my own son, Theon, he calls it, Dad, you're watching the bad news again, yeah? Because it's all bad news. It's having a bad effect on your mind. But silence and solitude and to unplug from the distractions centers us again on the purposes and the presence and the calling of God in our lives. So that's why we have to do it, brothers and sisters. The Christians have been doing this for thousands of years and we have never lived in such a distracted period in human history. We live in a time of what they call permanent partial attention. Even now you're thinking about what's on your phone. The minute I said phone, people went, oh, I wonder if I get any text messages. I wonder if I get any notifications. The we are living in partial attention. Try silence and solitude, unplug from the distractions and keep company with Jesus. I'm gonna ask for one. Can I get an amen? amen? But you have to make a decision to do it. Here's another one. Keep company with God's people, community, the shared values and the shared loves. So you come into a church like this that love Jesus, Amen. Amen. We want God's best for our lives. Amen. You come into a church like this, it is a form of shelter. You're sheltering out of the wind that's blowing all over your life. You come in and you shelter because you're with people who love you, who want your best, who share your values, who share your worldview, and who, like you, know that God is the victor in the end. That's who you're spending and spending company with. But it takes discipline. Here's another last one. Here's this one for this week. Sabbath. Take a day off. Amen. Take a day off. Come say amen. Everybody say amen. amen. Take a day off. What does that mean? Because you know as the scripture says in Genesis, and on the seventh day, God said, wash the car, cut the grass, vacuum the house, wash the toilets, take the children to soccer. That's okay. We're so many distractions in life. Maybe how's about taking an actual day off that's an actual day off? A time to say, Lord, I want to put some time and spend some time in your presence and in your company and actually rest the body and rest the mind and become restored and know the shalom peace of God filling my soul again. But it's called a discipline because it takes discipline. Do you know why? Because the drumbeat of the world will keep you marching and marching and distracting and wanting and desiring and it will never let up and you're pacing like a lion in the cage because you'll never give up and you never get out of the wind and they never stop talking. And let me tell you something about the wind of the culture. It is 24-7 blowing over your life news channels 24-7 shops are 24-7 the internet is 24-7 it never stops unless you say stop Amen. it will never stop unless you say stop it will never stop it will keep on invading you it'll keep on blowing over you it'll keep on giving you resistance in your life to living the way that God wants you to live they're called disciplines because it takes discipline to do them you have to make a decision and a choice, maybe sometimes to go against what you feel like doing. Anyway, let me get towards a wrap-up. Jesus said this. Jesus said, in this world, you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. And remember, he wrote this, or he said this, and it's recorded in John 16, 33. This is before the cross. Jesus said, I have. He didn't say, I will, or I'm gonna. 
He said, I have overcome the world. When he went through the temptation in the desert, when he went through the temptation to be crowned king, when he went through the temptation to prove and show miracles, when he went through all those temptations, he overcame the world. And he said, so you don't you need to worry about it, lads, because when you're with me, you can overcome the world too. Amen. 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 And he said, you're going to have trouble. And there's people in this congregation this morning, you've had trouble. And the trouble of the culture that you live in is actually coming to visit you. And sometimes you're made to feel guilty and wrong and made to feel offside and made to feel awful because people are saying that you're saying things and you're not saying those things at all. And you're feeling the trouble and the wind and the resistance of the world blowing over your life like a storm. You need to be in the presence of Jesus and get out of the wind. You can't live out of the wind. You must live in it. But you can get out of it and have your soul restored. Can I get an amen? amen. You know the name that this city, Cork City, the, 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 the motto of this city is a Latin motto. Stadio Bene Fida Carinus, which means a good and safe harbor for ships. And so on a very stormy day, you'll see lots of trawlers. You'll even see them tied up down on the quays just down here. You'll see trawlers. You'll see ships just outside the port in the bay, sheltering from the major storms. There's times when we need to come in, get into God's presence, get among God's people, unplug from the world and experience God's shelter and God's safety in our lives. Amen. For the sake of our souls. Because otherwise, we'll be blown away. Here's what it says. It says, Jesus, I love this story. Jesus is with his disciples. They're in the boat. A storm blows up. He gets up. He wakes up. He got up. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And for some of you today, for the trouble you're experiencing, for the anxiety that you're suffering, for the bad feelings you're feeling about the way that you want to go in terms of God's purposes and plans for your life, the Lord wants to say to those things that are resisting you today, quiet, be still. And when you yourself become quiet and still, God's quiet and be still is visited upon your soul. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. I want to pray in a second for those who are right in the middle of a storm at the moment and who want to know God's peace and God's calm at this time, that the Holy Spirit would visit you and give you the experience of the calm of the presence and the shalom of Jesus Christ. But let me finish with this last, very last verse. Promise you this. You see, up here on the screen is the telescopic sight on a rifle. If you are to aim at anything in your life, you must have a fixed point to aim at. If you're going to aim at anything in life, you must fix, have a fixed point. And the curious thing about it is when you look down through the sight on a rifle, and I've done it, something happens. What you're looking at becomes very clear, and everything around what you're looking at becomes very foggy. Your enemy, the devil, and the culture of this world wants to keep you looking all around the place, continually searching, continuously looking, whereas God, through the scriptures, and we look at it here, wants us to aim and fix our focus on his purpose and his plans for our lives. Here's what Paul wrote. He wrote to the Colossians. He said, since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits at the place of honor at God's right hand. And he says this, think about the things of heaven, not the things of the earth. What is in your sights? What are you aiming at? And he says, fix your sights on the reality of heaven. And this is one thing that many of you will face. Sometimes we think of heaven, it's all foggy and clouds and 
angels and feathers and people playing harps, playing robes and this kind of stuff. In actual fact, from a biblical perspective, it is heaven that is permanent. It is the solid reality. It is earth that is changing and earth that is passing away. Are you with me? Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. We just...